So welcome, welcome, welcome to Element this morning. My name is Jonathan G. Me and my wife, Michelle, are deacons at Element, uh, gospel community leaders, and we are expecting twins in October. Two boys, uh, Elliot and Asher, so we're very excited. They'll be here in October. Uh, we won't be using the Uversion app today. Um, Uversion's down, no fault to Uversion. I'm going to take credit for that one. Uh, I didn't get my sermons in on a reasonable time, finished it last night. So now if I see you on your phone, you're just not paying attention. Um, so the jig is up. <laughs> So we are in the middle of a sermon series entitled, What in the World? Um, Where it is questions that people have when they read scripture and they're just like, what in the world? This does not make any sense. So hopefully what we will do today is get a little bit more clarity on one of those questions. Uh, Last time I was up here was Father's Day. It was an emotional sermon. um, And I promised that this one would not be an emotional sermon or as emotional. Um, This one's actually more intellectual, so I might lose some of you because it's a complete switch. So hang in there, and we'll see see what happens. It's not a false, it's a false dichotomy. So anyway, uh, moving on, this week's question, yeah, pretty good at that. So this week's question is um, in 1 Samuel 15:11. God regrets choosing Saul. Why would God regret or be sorry? So that's the question, and there's a little extra. Also, Genesis 6. So it's extra little tagline. That part's not a question, but I like that. Um, so I think this is a really fun and important sermon, um, and I hope to show throughout this today that God does not regret. He does not change and we can trust in who he is. Um, He might lament over something, but different than actual regretting or changing. Um, So let's rise for the reading of God's word. 1 Samuel 15, 29 says this, The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for being a God who is trustworthy. You are trustworthy because you do not change. You are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you. Amen. So the question of God regretting is huge. It's a gigantic question. It's probably the greatest question ever asked in this What in the World series. And I'm just really happy we're we're doing it. So this question is not just asking if God can be sorry or regret his choices, but it hints at a much larger question, which is actually, can or does change, or can or does God change his mind? Or is he surprised by the way things play out? So we're going to be mainly focused in Samuel, so turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15.11, hard copy of Bible, once again, no phones today. So two times in the Bible, scripture tells us that God regretted something he has done. 1 Samuel 15, 11, and this is God speaking, says this, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from me following, sorry, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. The Genesis 6 part of the question is Genesis 6, 6 through 7, which is just prior to the flood account. 
And it says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. It had grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. So when we read passages like this, we're often like, what in the world? That does not make sense. So how do we reconcile that with the God of the Bible? Um, In addition to God regretting, there's actually 15 times or more in the Bible that alludes to God potentially regretting um, a future action that he might take. Um, I'm not going to read all those verses, but some of those are found in Exodus 32, 2 Samuel 24, 1 Chronicles, Psalm 106, Jeremiah 4, and there's plenty more. Um, So take a look at those, and if you want those references, please let me know. So this question, as I said, really should pique our interest, because it's asking if God can regret his choices, it could potentially mean that God is not perfect and he is unsure about the future in the sense that he does not have exhaustive knowledge of what is coming. It was called he lacks divine foreknowledge. This would be like God playing defense. Um, When something happens, he would be responding to that event. He would actually ask, what in the world? I didn't see this coming. He'd be completely blindsided by events that have taken place in history. It would actually mean that God could ask us questions that he may not have the answer to himself. The idea of regret can actually lead some people to believe that God was not able to foresee what would come out of his own decisions. And if given the opportunity again, he would have, had, he would have made different choices. This idea is briefly called open theism. I believe this is wrong and is an inaccurate portrayal of who God is. Um, but that's where we go if we don't look at God's character. So if you haven't gotten anything out of the What in the World series, we always have to read the Bible in context, and we have to understand God's character before trying to understand these difficult questions. So there's two character traits that we better need to understand before asking this question, which are God's immutability and God's sovereignty. We will need a basic understanding of both of these once again before we answer the question, did God regret either making humanity or making Saul king? So immutability of God. What is this? Essentially, the immutability of God is a fancy way of saying that God does not change. In any attribute, he is perfect and always sufficient. We have had a hard time understanding this because everything in our world is constantly changing. Politicians change their minds, their policies. We change our minds. My wife changed her her mind, um, mainly in terms of my facial hair. Before I grew a beard, she was like, you're going to look creepy. Don't ever, ever grow a beard. And I was like, no, I'm going to look great. And I did it. And now she won't let me shave. So apparently she likes creeps. So, <laughs> But everything in this world is changing constantly. And that's actually what um, the pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus mentioned. He said the only thing constant in this life is change. It's all around us, and it can be overwhelming. So if change is the background of our lives, we actually just oppose that with the God of the Bible. So the Bible constantly reminds us that we could rest assured in God's unchanging nature, despite the fluidity and chaos in our own life and existence. Scripture is clear when talking about God's immutability, so once again, his unchanging nature. 
and we must read scripture as a whole to better understand his character. Uh, we get the idea of God's immutability from a whole bunch of different passages. I'm going to give you a few just really, really quickly. I know there's no keynote, so you probably won't remember them, but Malachi 3.6 says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, of ch- you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So Israel is saved because God is constant. Uh, Hebrews 13.8 says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And him being the same actually allows us to trust God. He's a God who follows through on promises. Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son a man that he should repent. Similarly, in 1 Samuel 15.29, and also the strength of Israel, a way of referring to God, will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. There's a lot of other verses um, that talk about immutability, but we don't have time to to say them all. Passages that speak of God's immutable nature better lend to understanding of who he is. He is perfect, unchanging, and infinite in his wisdom. Ultimately, the fact that God is unchanging leads us to develop immense trust in who he is. Because once again, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Historically, gods were created in man's image. They were seen as bickering, quarreling, changing their minds, um, very fluid, um, no consistency. So if you read like Greek mythology, like the Odyssey and the Iliad, the gods are kind of childish. They're like us. Um, and then the Christian god, however, though, is constant and unmoving. He has revealed himself as perfect and lacking in nothing. But this unchanging nature of Christianity and God is actually something that people have a problem with, believe it or not. Um, Tim Keller once said, the earliest church was seen as too exclusive and as a threat to the social order because it would not honor all deities. Today, Christians are again being seen as exclusive and as a threat to the social order because it will not honor all identities. Yet, the early church thrived in that situation. And why is that? One of the reasons is that Christians were ridiculed as too exclusive and different, but others were drawn to Christianity because it was different. If a religion is not different from the surrounding culture, if it does not critique and offer an alternative to it, it dies because it is seen as unnecessary. And the Christian's critique of culture has stayed the same because, once again, our God is unmoved. We believe that God is always God. He is infinitely powerful, and he has always perfect foreknowledge. Never will God fail to accomplish his will due to a change in his power or nature. One of the great implications of this is that God, when he makes a promise to us, he does so with complete foreknowledge of all future circumstances and is therefore not caught off guard by anyone. He was not surprised by the fall. He's not surprised by our our continual sin or changes in the environment. Psalm 33.11 says this, The plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart throughout all generations. So God is the same in his promises. So it's important to ask, what does God promise? He does not promise us wealth, health, and prosperity, despite what you hear from televangelists. What God promises, though, is that if you trust in him, In Jesus, he will make all things work together for our good. But that good is not defined by our definition of good, but by God's. 
and that God will make grace abound and that his grace will always be sufficient for us. This means that nothing will ever separate us from God and no amount of sin will take us from his hands because he promises, once again, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I could go on and on about the immutability of God. I think it's such a cool concept to look at something unchanging when everything else in this world is always fluid. You can never step into the same river twice, but you could always go back to the same God. I believe the immutability of Christ is the cornerstone of our faith because it allows us to trust in God's goodness and providence even when our circumstances or our behavior are less than ideal. So what that means is, once again, God is not saying, I'm going to love you if you have good behavior. He's saying, I'm going to keep my promises, and regardless of how you perform, I'm going to fulfill both roles. Um, but we can't talk about immutability too much longer, so we've got to go to God's sovereignty. So turn in your Bibles, actual Bibles, to Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. The sovereignty of God essentially means that he has total control of all things, past, present, and future. Nothing happens that is outside of his knowledge or control, and he is not surprised by anything. All things are either caused by him or allowed by him for his own purposes and through his perfect will and timing. Romans 11.36 says this, For him, for from him and through him, and to him are all things. So I'm probably going to lose a lot of you now because this is going to be talking about God's sovereignty and it's a heavier topic. Um, but the passage in Isaiah 46, 8 through 11 says this. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purposes. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel far from a country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. What this passage means is that God knows the future because he plans the future and he accomplishes it. The future is the counsel of God being actively established. The future is the purpose of God being accomplished by God. I know it's confusing. Stick with me. Then the next verse, 11, gives clear confirmation to what this actually means. God says, I have spoken and I will bring it to a pass. I have proposed and I will do it. What this text shows is that God has the power and authority and wisdom to bring about everything in nature that he intends to. Nothing is surprising to God. He is governing nature, people, the past, present, and future. God's sovereignty, though, does not mean that God makes people sin. It means that God can and will take all the evil that men do and use it for his purposes in our ultimate good. What a wonderful picture of redemption that is. And I know we're not formally good with God's sovereignty and immutability, but I want to get on to, to the question of um, today. So I want you to keep that in mind as we move forward, though. 
So the question, once again, is in 1 Samuel 15, 11, God regrets choosing Saul. Why would God regret or be sorry? Also, Genesis 6. So the brief answer, keeping in mind God's character, is that God was not sorry. He did not regret for making Saul king or making humanity. At least in the way that we are often sorry for our mistakes we make when things don't go according to our plan. He would not have changed his mind or his path if he was given the opportunity to do so again. Because our God is unchanging and he is the author of all things, um, that allows us to gain confidence and he doesn't have regret the way we have regret. So what does this mean, though, when it says God regrets? Um, I think it's important to first define our terms. So what regret means comes from the Hebrew word um, necham. It's the same word often used for repent. Essentially, the word um, necham uh, refers to God repenting along with other human beings doing the same. The basic sense is being sorry or grieved for something that has been done. Frequently, God relents or changes his dealings with humans. God was grieved at humanity. God regretted making Saul king. And all those are, though, is called anthropomorphisms. That is a fancy word that essentially means you are ascribing human character traits to something that is not human. You see this all throughout scripture, God speaking. God does not have a formal mouth unless it's through Jesus. But we do this so we can better understand who he is. But with anthropomorphisms, our language is flawed, so we can't actually describe who God is accurately. Um, a modern-day example of an anthropomorphism is Beauty and the Beast. Um, Mrs. Potts, the candlestick, um, essentially all the characters, they are given human attributes. They are acting as if they are human, but in reality, they are pieces of furniture. Um, but you can do that to a deity. So, once again... God's regret or repentance is not like that of a man. John Piper stated, What distinguishes God from men is that man often changes his mind because he cannot foresee all that is coming. But God, on the other hand, always foresees what is coming and changes his mind only in response to that foreseen situation. So there's kind of a changelessness in God that is not in man. Yes, God is interacting with us, and he can change his responses to us, but it does not mean his nature is actually changing. And that's important to, once again, remember. So I believe God is capable of experiencing complex emotional states, and this is actually an anthropomorphism as well. Um, but John Piper actually says this uh, when talking about God regretting. God is able to feel sorrow for an act in view of foreknown evil and yet go ahead and do it for a variety of different reasons. So when we regret, we'd like to change our course. But when God regrets, he laments over the state of things. Uh, So if that doesn't make sense, we're going to give an example um, from my personal life. So I work with severely and persistently mental Um, mentally ill people, and I often have to face the choice of placing someone in a psychiatric hospital in an involuntary hold. This is called a 5150, and you do it for danger to self or danger to others. So if they are a risk of harming themselves or other people, um, you might have to place someone in a psychiatric hospital. 
Thankfully, I have never had to do that, but I know if I had to, I would feel pain, grief, and remorse for the events that have transpired. And most likely, it would rob or destroy that therapeutic relationship um, with me and the client. The client would probably not want to participate in therapy after I say you're in a hospital. Um, but knowing all those things, would that make me change my mind? No. I would continue that course. It would cause me pain, and I understand that pain, but that pain would not lead me to change. That's what regret is, and that's how God is using it. We have to think about um, things that Aaron said last week. We must understand that the authors of Scripture are as smart, if not smarter, than we are. In 1 Samuel 15, where this week's What in the World question is asked from the author of Samuel, um, it states that God regretted in both verses 15 and 35. But yet, smack dab in the middle of that is the kind of the answer and the explanation of this. In verse 15, 29, the author states, And also the glory of Israel, referring to God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. It is always a good rule of thumb, though, when looking at scripture to understand that the writers are not completely stupid. They put this in there for a reason. What it means is that the author is trying to teach us something about God. Kevin DeYoung writes this, On one hand, our God is not static, monotonous, and lifeless. As a personal, relational being, God's activity um, in the world is subject to change and allows for all the dynamic dynamicism we have in our personal relationships. There was always bound to be conflict in covenantal history between God and human beings. But this does not mean there is conflict within God's being. When God sees the disobedience of Saul, he uses a word that makes sense to us. The word is regret or repent. But this does not mean that God was ignorant of Saul's sin or caught off guard by his rebellion. He is unchanging and he is sovereign. He is the author of all things. As I said, and John Piper points out, God is quite capable of lamenting a state of affairs he himself foreknew and brought about. God is, God's regret is not exactly like our regret in every way. This seems to be the point verse 29 is making. That God can look at Saul and say, I am grieved that he has sinned. I am hurt by his actions. But at the same time, hold on to that and say, that is still the right choice. I have never changed my mind. Just like with the 5150 example. Or if you're a parent and you discipline your child, there's going to be regret or remorse, but that does not mean you don't discipline. Think of it this way. Was it sin that Jesus was falsely tried and convicted? Yes. Was it sin when Peter lied and denied Jesus? Yes. Was it sin to beat Jesus to a bloody pulp and face charges to make, or on false charges to make an example of him? Yes. But God used all of that to secure our salvation. Do you think while hanging on the cross, the father regretted the pain being inflicted upon his one and only son? Yes. But God's regret did not make him change his mind because he knew what he was doing from the foundation of the world. 
he swallowed pain and moved forward in his actions. Our regret and God's are so far apart, it is like the expanse of the universe. When we regret, we say, I wish I did not do that. I wish I never dated that person. I wish I never took that job. I wish I did not eat that. I wish I bought a minivan earlier in my life. Look again at how God says it in 1 Samuel 15.11. He says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. This is really important. He does not say, I wish I never made him king. We may say that, but God knew that everyone would be just as bad. This is about God's sorrow of man's sin and what God will do to eventually bring about his plan in the midst of it. If we look at Genesis 6, 6 through 7, it says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It does not say here that he wanted to go back and not make man. If that were so, we wouldn't be here. It would be end of the story. It is that the sin of man is so bad that it grieved God to his heart. And when we hear the word grieved God to his heart, in Hebrew, this has the connotation of uncontrollable sobbing. God's heart breaks because of our sin. And yet he loves us enough not to destroy us, and ultimately he brings us salvation in Christ. The band is going to come back, and as they do, we remember that Jesus dies for our sin. He has been beaten and crucified and because there is no righteous person except Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our God takes bad people like you and me and changes them by his grace. He restores us to life, but that grace is not free. It cost Jesus his life. Did God regret the cross? Yes. Would God have changed that outcome? No. You're allowed to lament over a state of affairs, but our God is unchanging. And that's one of the reasons why we come to communion week after week. We acknowledge that although Christ's body was broken, he was here and he filled the perfect life for us so that we may live. And in that promise, we know that God entered into our suffering. He, he wept for our sin. He can relate and he gets it. And then he made us clean. There's going to be offering boxes on the sides and in the back. Um, and we give because God has given so much to us. It's a response. And if you are going through a chaotic season in life and you need prayer and you just feel like your life is a whirlwind, our God is a rock and he is unchanging. And that is good news. So go seek prayer for our God is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for entering into our life and being constant. Thank you for not changing and going back on your word. Thank you for fulfilling your promises. And your promise is to 
make us clean by your son's blood. Father, I pray that in chaos we can remember that you are unchanging and that you are good all the time. That you are perfect and lacking in nothing. And when we understand your goodness and your immutability and your sovereignty, we can trust that you have us and that you will quiet the storms. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.